Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we're um, studying the, um, the uh, we're doing a study on the subject of angels here on Wednesday nights, and we're using Hebrews chapter one verse fourteen as the text scripture for that series, which says, "Speaking of the angels, are not are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them?" Who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, we've made the point before. It doesn't say minister to. It says minister for. Now, certainly we see cases and examples in the Bible where angels minister to the children of God or the people of God. But the Bible says that they are sent to minister for you. In other words, on your behalf, which would include to you as well as carrying things out concerning God's will for you. Now, we've uh, we've looked at some different things, different aspects about the angels. And... um, uh, we're taking what the Bible says, and there's a lot that the Bible doesn't tell us about angels. And uh, I made mention of, uh, of this fact uh, last week, I believe it was, last Wednesday night. Uh, we've got kind of a problem where it comes to the operation of angels. We can't see them. And so there's a lot of things that we are left to operate on or, or, or understand by principle rather than specifics, unless the Bible gives us specifics. So we've seen that they're agents of protection. We've seen that they are agents of healing. And we're, tonight we want to talk about them being agents of divine guidance. So tonight I want you to turn your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 8, if you will. We're going to stick with the New Testament examples of uh, what the Bible tells us about angels primarily this evening. Acts chapter 8 tells us about how that Philip went down to Samaria, the first part of the chapter, We'll start in verse 5. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, folks, I would uh, draw to your attention that this is the first time, even though Jesus, uh, when he was raised from the dead, he gave charge and commandment to the disciples to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. Samaria was part of where Jesus said to take the gospel. Yet they've been in Jerusalem for several years, and the word of God has never gotten outside the city limits. I'm certain that it was spoken of in places where people would come through town, hear about things, or uh, see signs and wonders, or whatever it might be, and, and take it to wherever they traveled on to. But the word of God has never been deliberately preached or taken outside the city of Jerusalem up until Acts chapter 8. And so it says, Philip went down to Samaria, and he had quite a revival down there. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for, it's going to tell us what miracles he did, what healings took place, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many, not all, many, that were possessed with them, and many, not all, many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. That doesn't tell us any blind eyes were opened. Doesn't tell us that anybody that was deaf had their ears opened up. So it's very specific in the way that uh, the Bible describes how the Holy Ghost used Philip in this campaign in Samaria. Verse 8, and there was great joy in the city. Um, then it tells us about uh, Simon, the, the fellow that had used sorcery. We don't want to read about him. Um, Let's see in verse 12, it says, Now when they believed, but when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. So you can see Philip was an evangelist. It doesn't say that he taught about who we are in Christ. It just simply says he preached the name of Jesus and the things concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, he told people about how to get saved. He didn't tell anybody about how to get filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, Now when 
the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, which tells us Philip didn't go down because somebody commissioned him to. There wasn't some gathering of the church leaders, the apostles, Peter, John, or anybody else, and said, okay, now here's what we want you to do. Philip, we want you to go down to Samaria, and then we'll follow you after a couple of weeks and, and clean up. Now, when they heard, so Philip did something as he was prompted by the Holy Ghost, not because the church sent him out, but because he had it on his heart to do. Apparently, God sent him down there. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What that simply means is people just got saved but not filled with the Holy Ghost. So Peter and John go down and carry out a different work of the church, a subsequent work, a subsequent work or a, a work subsequent to salvation, which is called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so what did they do? They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, it talks about how great things happened and the whole city was filled with joy and so forth. But notice in verse 26, it says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. Now we see an operation of the angel following this great revival. Now, does that mean the angels weren't involved in the healings of the people that were being set free from the devil? No, very, very possibly they were involved. We don't know. The Bible just doesn't specify that. We know that they're agents of healing, so maybe that they had a work in the healings that took place. The people that were healed of uh, palsies and that were lame in Samaria. Maybe they had a work to, a part to do in that work. We don't know. That's kind of what I'm talking about when I said earlier, we can't see, so we can't make it, we can't automatically, uh, understand or know what's going on. We might make assumptions based on principles, but we don't know unless the Bible tells us. Yet now the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and he tells him what to do. Now, I need to, um, Stop here long enough to, to talk about this phrase, angel of the Lord. A lot of times people will see the, the phrase angel of the Lord in the New Testament and they'll say, well, the same phrase is used in the Old Testament, so it's got to mean the same thing. Well, I disagree. And here's why. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the angel of the Lord doing certain things. And in my estimation, we can assume, at least in some cases that it's used, maybe not in every case, but in some cases that the phrase angel of the Lord is used, we can assume and should assume in my opinion, that that's a work of Jesus, that that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus because the things that he does is stuff that Jesus does as far as the church and, and his people and so forth are concerned. There are some things, some works that are not delegated to angels. And there are many things that the Bible talks about the angel of the Lord doing in the Old Covenant or under the in the Old Testament that would normally seem to be Jesus himself. But that can't be the case in the New Testament because we know about the Lord in the New Testament. We didn't know about Jesus in the Old Testament. They didn't know about Jesus in the Old Testament. So any appearance, any supernatural appearance, any being that appeared to them, they're automatically, meaning the Jews, people of God under the Old Covenant, they're automatically going to assume that's an angel of some type or some form, right? And that's one reason that the, that the angels carried such a high place of prominence in Judaic theology. That's one of the reasons why in, in Hebrews chapter 1, when Peter, uh, is, uh, excuse me, when Paul starts talking about Jesus being better than anything to Jews that are steeped in the law of Moses, the first thing he starts talking about Jesus being greater than is the angels. Well, why the angels? 
if the angels didn't hold such a high place of prominence where the Jews are concerned and where their belief concerning God was, was involved, why would he start with the angels? He didn't start off talking about how Jesus was greater than the devil. Why? Because the devil's not a big deal in Judaic doctrine. But he did start off talking about Jesus being greater than the angels. Why? Because the angels are at the top of the Jews' belief where the things of God were concerned. So in the Old, in the Old Testament, they didn't know about Jesus. They barely understood anything about the Messiah. When Jesus came and, and it was revealed to them that he is the Messiah, even some of his own disciples said, okay, you're going to take Israel back from the Romans now? They didn't know what he was about. They didn't know what his sacrifice was going to be about. They didn't know what redemption was about. They didn't know. They had the law and the prophets, and they still didn't understand. So there's no way that we could legitimately understand or assume that they would know the Lord under the old covenant. He was a mystery to them. Even when he was here on the earth, he was a mystery to them. But he's not a mystery to us. Once you're saved, you get this Lord thing figured out pretty quick. Jesus died for your sins, he was raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God. So now, nowhere is the Holy Ghost going to say in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord, if it's talking about Jesus, because everything about the Holy Ghost points to Jesus, not an angel. So this phrase can't be Jesus. Do you understand where I'm coming from on that? Do you understand why I get to where I'm talking about here? Okay, well, if this is not... Jesus that says it, if it was Jesus, it would tell us. The Holy Ghost would tell us that it was Jesus. Well, if it's not Jesus, then who is it? It's an angel sent by God. That's what angel of the Lord means under the New Covenant and in the New Testament. So after Philip has this great revival, gets people saved and sets the stage for Peter and John to come down and get them filled with the Holy Ghost and then start teaching about who they are in Christ. The angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, under the way that goes down from the Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all of her treasure. He's her treasurer. Now, if he's controlling the purse strings under her direction, he's a big guy. He's an important guy. Carries a lot of weight, a lot of authority. And he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. He's reading the book of Isaiah. Now, if you've trudged through the book of Isaiah, you could well understand that a guy that's not saved, it's not going to make any sense to him at all. It's hard enough for us that are saved to get some of it. Amen? He's not going to understand anything he's reading. So... Verse 29, then the Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join yourself to this chariot. And he did. He wound up going in and explaining to him what uh, he asked him, do you understand what you're reading in Isaiah? And he said, how can I if somebody doesn't explain it to me? This is a little blind to me. And uh, so anyway, he gets him saved, baptizes him in water, and then Philip is caught away and finds himself in another city. He's translated away in the twinkling of an eye. Now, Here's a question I've got for you. Why did the angel tell him in verse, what is it, verse 26? Why did the angel tell him where to go when the Spirit told him once he got there what to do? See, Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Why, why are angels telling them what to do? I thought it was the Holy Ghost is supposed to lead us. Well, he is. Well, Pastor Mike, should we look to angels for guidance? No. But... There are times where God will use angels to bring divine guidance 
to supplement or to be an aid to the work of the Holy Ghost in, in guiding us. Now, there are three times, and we'll look at all three times in the New Testament, there are three times where angels give divine guidance. Every one of them has to do with the building of the church. The church fathers, the early church fathers that told of this story, their accounts tell us that this Ethiopian uh, eunuch went back to Candace's court, who was the queen of the Ethiopians, and it sparked a revival in northern Africa. So you could well understand how important it was for God to put somebody in this guy's path, knowing that his heart was opened so he could find Jesus and take the good news of salvation back to where he came from. So what do we see? We see Philip going down to Samaria and preaching Christ. First time that the gospel gets outside of Jerusalem. And then immediately God sends Philip to make a connection with a guy that takes the gospel back to northern Africa. It's the building of the church. Now look with me over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 tells us about a man named Cornelius. Beginning in verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. He was a devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, when it says he was a centurion, that means he was a Roman soldier. He was a Roman soldier that cared about the things of God, but he didn't know anything about the things of God. But he gave much alms to the people. That means he was a giver, and he prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming in unto him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked upon him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? Now, he's calling this angel Lord, which tells you he doesn't know anything about anybody. And he said unto him, Your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. In other words, God's pleased with your giving, and he's pleased with your praying. Folks, he's starting off on the right foot. That puts him head and shoulders above what a lot of Christians are doing in their lives. Okay, we'll move right along. (laughs) Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now, here's the angel telling him, And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodged with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spoke unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, that's pretty specific information, folks. The angel appears and says, God's pleased with your giving. He's pleased with your praying. Now, I guess we could ask the question, why didn't the angel tell him about Jesus? Because nowhere under the new covenant does it tell us that the angel's job is to preach the gospel. The Bible says men are saved by the foolishness of preaching of other men, not of angels. Now, that changes when the church gets out of here. During the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation, it tells us that the angels do fly through the air preaching or proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we're talking about during the church age. Things change after the church leaves and the church age ends. But during the church age, it's left to us. He commissioned, Jesus commissioned us. Mankind, believers, to go in the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say, go into all the world and the angels will preach the gospel. That's our job. So the angel's job is not to preach the gospel, so the best thing he can do is tell him somewhere where he can find someone that will preach the gospel to him. And he's real specific about it. He says, send to Joppa, city of Joppa, 
tells him where to go, and then tells him who to find, Simon, surnamed Peter, and then he tells him what house he's in. He's in the house of one Simon the Tanner, and he lives over by the seaside. Folks, I, I, I think it's important to make the, the, the point. God's not trying to keep us in the dark. If we're in the dark, it's not his fault. God's work is to reveal, not to hide. Amen? So what happens? He sends guys to find Peter. Now, God's working on this thing on the other end. You remember Peter is in this Simon the Tanner's house. He goes up on the rooftop to pray, waiting for lunch to be made. And while he's up there, he falls into a trance. And while he's in this trance, he has a vision. And you remember the vision, how it's this sheet with all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean, some um, uh, legal according to the law of Moses and some illegal according to the law of Moses as far as your ability to eat. And as the sheet comes down, he hears a voice three times. This happens. The sheet comes down three times. He hears the voice. The Lord speaks to him in this in this vision and says, rise, slay and eat. And Peter, being the good believer and good follower he is, says, not so, Lord. For no unclean thing has ever touched my lips. You can see that Peter's still interested in the law of Moses. He's saved. He's operating in signs and wonders and miracles. He's filled with the Holy Ghost, but he's still trying to keep the law of Moses. That's interesting that Peter says, not so, Lord. Let me read this. Verse 14, Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Can I ask you a question? How do you say no, Lord? I mean, Lord kind of guarantees a yes answer, doesn't it? Lord means you're the master and I'm the servant. Lord means whatever you say goes. Peter, good old Peter, says not so, Lord. You would have thought he had learned a lesson on this because this is exactly what happened over in Mark chapter 16 where Jesus begins to, to ask the disciples, or not Mark 16, no, Matthew 16, where Jesus begins to ask the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter is the one that answers for the group and says, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, and others say you're Elijah or, or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turns it around on them. He said, but who do you say I am? Peter speaks up again. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, Jesus pats him on the back for that. He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, if you just stop right there, Peter's got to be looking around to the other guys, especially looking for John. John, did you hear that? Did you hear what Jesus just said? I just heard from heaven. And it's not a few minutes later that Jesus begins to tell about how he's going to Jerusalem, going to be crucified and killed and raised again the third day. And then Peter says, not so, Lord. Now, just as puffed up as he must have been when God, when Jesus said to him, you just heard from heaven... Jesus then turns around to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not calling Peter Satan. He's not saying Peter is of the devil. He's saying, just like you heard from God a minute ago to say that I was the Christ, now you've been listening to the devil and you're speaking for him by saying what I said is not going to come to pass. Now, you would have thought that would have been enough for Peter to learn. And again, when Jesus, the night that Jesus was betrayed, you remember Jesus said that everybody was going to run away from him, and Peter said, not me. 
Everybody else may leave you, Jesus, but not me. I'll stick it out to the end. Jesus said, Peter, Peter, Peter. Before the morning, before the cock, the cock crows in the morning, you deny me three times. And he did. You would have thought that Peter would have learned. How many times does it take us to learn? Now, folks, I'm not throwing rocks because I think Peter's ahead of me in some things. There are some things that I had something happen just this last weekend that I, it's like, I'm, how many times is this going to take for me to realize that this is not about feeling something, it's about the word? I mean, I preach this stuff. I've been preaching this stuff forever. <laughs> Yet I realize I'm looking for a feeling too sometimes. I'm thinking, oh, yes. okay, come on, I know better than that. Of course I know better than that. I preach better than that. I don't have near the trouble living up to somebody else's preaching as I have living up to my own. You know? So Peter may be ahead of me. I'm not throwing rocks. But it is something for us to learn by and learn from. So he says, not so, Lord, for no unclean thing has ever passed over my lips. And then the voice spoke unto him and said, don't call common or unclean what I've cleansed. Now, since this happened three times, you would have thought the first time he heard that, maybe he would back up on that not so, Lord. But apparently he carries it out three times. Same way. Verse 19, it says, after this was over, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men seek you. These three guys that Cornelius sent to find you, now they're here. Now, he doesn't know anything about Cornelius yet. He doesn't know anything about the vision. Doesn't know anything about the angel sending him down there. But he hears the story. He goes down to where Cornelius is, goes to his house. A lot of people gathered there together. Cornelius has gotten his household and everybody else that, that wants to come here. Big crowd. Peter goes down there. He understands. Okay, this has something to do with the vision that God showed me, that the Lord showed me. He's showing me that the Gentiles have been clean too. This wasn't about animals that you can eat. This is about people. And so he begins to preach the message to them. Now notice verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, while he's still preaching his message, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Now, folks, when God interrupts your sermon, I guess it's okay. I don't mind God interrupting mine. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter. Now, th now think about what that means. They of the circumcision, that means the Jewish leaders, the ones still holding on to the law of Moses, who are believers too, but just like Peter, they're mixing Christianity and the law of Moses together. They of the circumcision which believed, which came down with Peter, were astonished. Why? Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, this is ten years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Ten years after Acts chapter 2. And they haven't yet figured out that Jesus died for the world. How do they know that the Holy Ghost was poured out upon them? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. Then Peter said, well, can anybody forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they prayed him to tarry certain days. He says, well, if they're saved, if they're filled with the Holy Ghost, we know they've got to be saved. And if they're saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, who's going to tell them they can't be baptized in water? So go ahead and do that too. So we saw in Acts chapter 8 that the Holy Ghost that an angel, excuse me, that an angel told Philip where to go to find a man that sparked a revival in North Africa. 
Then in Acts chapter 10, we find that an angel told Cornelius where to go to find Peter to tell him about Jesus. And they were saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, uh, saved and filled with the Holy Ghost all in one shot. That's not the way it worked in Acts chapter 8. They were saved under Philip's ministry, and then Peter and John came down and, and laid hands on them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Here in Acts chapter 10, the angel sending for Jesus, sending for Peter, who preaches Jesus to him, the Holy Ghost falls, and they get saved and filled with the Spirit all in one shot. And now here's the first time that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And Peter was called on the carpet about it. Next chapter is all about Peter trying to set up his defense from the people in Jerusalem, the circumcision. They of the circumcision. In other words, the Jewish leaders who are still mixing Christianity and the law of Moses together, they're saying, whoa, what are you doing? You preach Jesus to the Gentiles? And Peter said, well, there was this vision, see, and there was an angel that appeared to Cornelius, and I, I just went where God told me to go. It's not my fault. They called him on the carpet about this. So you can see the angel working with specific instruction for the building of the church. Remember, that's what Jesus said he'd do. He said, I will build my church. That's the other part of what he told Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my Father which is in heaven, and upon this rock the knowledge of who Jesus is. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Apparently the angels are involved in that building of the church. Now, folks, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would God have this innumerable company of angels? Hebrews chapter 12 says there is an innumerable company of angels that we are called unto, unto the church, the church of the firstborn, and to unto an innumerable company of angels. That means an, an, an un, unnumbered amount. If that's a, I don't know, you sure if that's a good way to say it, but you know what I'm trying to say anyway, don't you? I'm just an Alabama boy. I'm having a hard time with the language. Maybe someday I'll get it. Angels that you can't count. Well, wouldn't it make sense that God would use them? What's he using them for? Well, one thing that we see here is he's using them to bring divine guidance for the building of the church. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 tells us the story of Paul on the road or on the, uh, the trip to Rome. Part of that trip was by sea. We'll start in verse 9. It says, Now when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive. Please notice that phrase, Sirs, I perceive. He didn't say God told me. He didn't say I have a, a revelation, divine revelation from God. He said I perceive something. All of us should have a spiritual perception. The closer we walk in fellowship with the Lord and the more we feed on the word of God, the more we should build a spiritual perception about things, folks. A work of the Holy Ghost is to show you things to come. Well, if the Holy Ghost lives in you, you should have some kind of perception or, or I don't know if there's any other word to, to substitute there. Sometimes we say an inkling or impression about things that are to come. That's what Peter, that's what uh, Paul is talking about here. He said, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than the things which were spoken by Paul. He's just a prisoner. These rugged seamen are saying, why should we listen to him? We know more about sailing than he does. What does he know? If he knew anything, maybe he wouldn't be in chains. So what happens? It tells us that they get out, out about a week or two. Well, more than a week. It's got to be more than a week maybe two, maybe three weeks into this voyage. And it says that um, 
Well, let's start in verse 20. It says, and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Everybody has lost hope. These hardened sailors realize we're not going to make it out of this. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not lose from Crete and to gain this harm and loss. There's something about Paul. He seemed to have an element of I told you so. I like this guy. You should have listened to me. I tried to tell you before we ever got in this trouble. But no. You guys knew better, didn't you? should have listened to me. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. In other words, remember I told you. I, I don't think he's trying to say I told you so, to be perfectly honest. I think he's reminding them to establish credibility for what he's about to tell them again. He says, now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Now, is there any reason for anybody to be of good cheer on this ship? None. Everybody's given up hope. <laughs> We're going to die. And I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. Ship's going down, but we're not. How do you know, Paul? For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. I love that phrase. There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am. I'm God's and who I serve. I serve God. I love that phrase. Every time I read that, it just thrills me. There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and who I serve. Saying, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. That's another good phrase. I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Can I ask you a question? Why didn't Jesus appear? We see other time in Paul's ministry that Jesus appeared. When he was in Jerusalem, Jesus appeared and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. Just like I sent you here, I'm sending you to Rome. Is Jesus busy with somebody else? Why didn't Jesus appear? Why didn't the Holy Ghost tell him? Anybody have an answer for any of these things? What about Acts chapter 8? How did the angel of the Lord tell Philip? Notice it says the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, go down in the way of Gaza. It does not say the angel of the Lord appeared unto Philip. How do we know that it was the angel of the Lord? Did he see him? The Bible doesn't say so. Here it says the angel stood by me. It doesn't say I saw him. It says I know he was there. Now, we read things like this into these verses, and we may be right. We may be accurate in our assumption, but the Bible really doesn't say it. Now, in Acts chapter 10, it's a different thing. Cornelius saw him in a vision. The Bible's real clear on that. He saw him in a vision and talked to him. But the other two instances that were just as miraculous as far as divine guidance was concerned, the Bible doesn't say that he saw him. Now, I bring this out only because, folks, we get certain things in our mind about how we think things are supposed to be. And if they don't happen that way, we think it's not working. And I want to caution you against that. I have to work on this myself. This goes back to what I said earlier. We get things in our mind about how it's going to be or how it's supposed to be. And we're looking for God to fit our mentality rather than recognizing, wait a minute, that's what we assume, but that's not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to be like this. Well, why not Jesus? 
Why didn't Jesus appear? It would certainly have been appropriate for Jesus to appear. Jesus appeared in Jerusalem to him when he was in prison. When they cast him into prison and said, don't worry, Paul, just like you've testified of me in Rome, you'll also testify of me in or testify of me in Jerusalem. So also will you testify of me in Rome? Wouldn't this be a perfect time for Jesus to appear and say, Paul, it looks bad, but you're on the right track. You're going to make it. It would seem so. But it's the angel of the Lord. And he says, fear not, Paul. For there shall be no loss of any man's life, but of the ship. Ship's going down. But not you. Folks, do you realize how good that is? The ship around you may go down. The country around us may go down, but not you. Not you. And it happens just the way Paul said. It turns out just exactly the way Paul said. Just exactly the way Paul said. So what do we see? We see that angels are agents of guidance, divine guidance. Now, I want you to turn back with me in the Old Testament to Daniel. I told you we'd stick with the New Testament. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. These are three New Testament witnesses, and I don't think it's coincidental that there are three for us to establish this principle as the work of the angels, one work of the angels. But I want you to look back to the book of Daniel, and I want to bring this New Testament principle back into an Old Testament application and point something out. I want you to turn with me uh, to Daniel chapter 9, first of all. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10. You remember the story of Daniel and the three Hebrew children? There were four of these guys that when uh, uh, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, they took these guys in to the king's palace, Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They, they fed them. They groomed them. They're trying to make them advisors. Now, this was not an unknown thing. This is kind of foreign to our understanding, but the way it worked in uh, olden days was uh, that when a conquering nation would, uh, would come in, they would take young people from the conquered nation and they would school them. They would educate them in their ways, the ways of the conquering nation, with the intent of putting them back in positions of rulership many, many years later after they'd been indoctrinated or propagandized or whatever the case might be, however we would want to describe it, after they would be, uh, after they would become, in, in this case, Babylonianized, they would put them back in rulership over Israel so that Israel wouldn't be fighting against Babylonian rulers. They would acquiesce to the leadership of their own people. But Babylon would have a, a, a control over the people that were in rulership because they had been educated in school. That's what being in the school of, of, of the, the, being under the tutelage of the eunuchs was and all that was about. You remember how that Daniel said, we can't defile ourselves with things contrary to the law of Moses. Give us, um, you know, pulse and water, oatmeal, basically. And, and we'll live on that. And God caused them to be fairer and fatter in appearance from what they were eating that uh, didn't violate uh, the law of Moses than, than all the people that were eating all the other stuff. Well, the same thing occurred where the three Hebrew children was concerned. They would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image, and as a result, God saved them out of the fiery furnace. Over and over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar sees that God is really God, and he winds up submitting somewhat. 
to God being the God of all. That doesn't mean he let God control his life and he didn't get anything close to what we would consider saved or anything. Of course, there wasn't, was no Jesus, no sacrifice or whatever. But he recognized that Daniel's God was God. And as a result, Daniel and the three Hebrew children gained positions of prominence. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to send them back to Israel now. He wanted to keep these guys around him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't wind up ruling over Israel or over even over Babylon all the time that uh, that Daniel and the three Hebrew children are there. There were four rulers, four kings that Daniel served under. Now, one of those kings is talked about here in um, chapter 9. First, there was Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, there was Belshazzar. Third, there was Darius. And fourth, there was Cyrus. You had um, Nebuchadnezzar. Then you had um, uh, Belshazzar. Belshazzar was uh, was an Assyrian king. You had um, uh, Darius, who was a Mede. And then you had Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And all these over Daniel's uh, term, lifetime, there in uh, in Nebuchadnezzar, first in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and then his renown, his fame was such that all these other guys recognized there's something special about this guy. They kept him on as an advisor too. And uh, and as a result, during the third of these four kings, we see something about Daniel that tells us about the operation of angels. Let's start in chapter nine, verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of somebody, as Hazurus, maybe I don't know of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to the Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, Jeremiah is the one that prophesied that Israel would be bound under Babylon and therefore the subsequent rulers that that overcame or that followed uh, Nebuchadnezzar. For 70 years. The important thing about this is Daniel studied the Bible just like we're supposed to. He understood that the Bible told him that the word of God told him. That there were 70 years that would be accomplished. Verse three. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, and it tells us about all of his prayer and all of his confession and so forth. Skip down with me to verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to sw- fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening, uh, evening oblation. In other words, he's saying, after, as a result of all of these things, then da- Gabriel appears. Now, who's Gabriel? Gabriel's an angel. Gabriel's an angel. Gabriel winds up telling him about everything that we know about Daniel's 70 weeks. He understands that the 70 years are a type of the end time to come. Not just Israel coming out of bondage from the Babylonians and then the Assyrians, then the the Medes, and then the Persians, but these things represent or illustrate the 70 weeks before Jesus comes back for the church. Now, folks, everything we understand about Revelation and the time up to Revelation is based on Daniel's vision, and he got it from an angel. Now, why? It wasn't an angel that gave him the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that set him up in position to begin with. 
It wasn't an angel that gave him the interpretation to Belshazzar's writing on the wall. They were having a big feast and all of a sudden a man's hand appeared, or it looked like a man's hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster wall something that they couldn't interpret. They called for Daniel. Daniel comes in and says, okay, king, I don't know this because I'm smart. I know this only because God tells me things. Told him what it was and basically told him that his kingdom was going to be taken away from him. He was very diplomatic in the way he told him. But that wasn't an angel that told him. So why is an angel telling him this? It's not that an angel is necessary for divine guidance. It's just that God sometimes does it that way. That's the point I want you to see. Now look at chapter 10. The angel Gabriel came in chapter 9 as a result of his prayer. Now what's he praying for? Is he praying for an angel? No. And please don't misunderstand any of this to think that anybody is suggesting that I would ever suggest that we need to pray and look for angels. We don't find that ever in the Bible. Don't look for angels. Expect them. As because they hearken unto the voice of God's word. Expect them to help. But don't look for them. Don't seek after them. Chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. That's his um, Babylonian name. And the thing was true, but the time was appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So it's saying that he had revelation about something. He knew something was coming. It doesn't tell us what he knew. It doesn't tell us what it was he got revelation about. It said he knew something was coming, but he knew it was going to be a long time coming. But he had understanding of the vision. He had understanding. God gave him revelation. This was not by an angel. This was not by anything. But that's the point that he started praying. So there was something about the understanding that he had that caused him to start praying and fasting. And he fasted for three weeks, for 21 days. And it tells us about it. It says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. That means fasting. I ate no pleasant bread. doesn't say he didn't eat anything. It said he ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine into my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel, then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was also like beryl, his face was the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were as the lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet were in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So when he says certain man, does everybody understand this is not a human? This is an angel. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Now get the picture. Daniel is with some other guys that are devout, that are praying with him. We don't know who these other guys are. But whoever these other guys are, Daniel sees the angel. The other guys don't see the angel, but they start shaking like leaves and run away to hide. So they know something's happening. We don't have any indication that Daniel said, look, there's an angel. And they said, we don't see him, but we can feel him, and then we're going to go. It just indicates that they were supernaturally aware of it, and it had an effect on their bodies, and they took off. And, folks, that's exactly what a lot of people do when they sense the supernatural. They run to hide themselves. You know it as well as I do, don't you? may not be you, but you know other people. Some people will get in, in church and they'll get in the presence of God and they can't handle it. 
they take off. And then, of course, they'll make up some excuse for why they had to go. Usually it's the church's fault. But in many cases, because they recognize the supernatural, they might not even know that it's the supernatural they're recognizing. But they know something is going on, and they're not comfortable with it, so they take off. That's what happened here. Daniel sees them. The other guys don't, but they're aware. Now, remember what we said before about Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 27? The angel of the Lord said to Philip, doesn't say that he appeared, it says that he said. Maybe he was aware of him without ever having seen him. Acts chapter 27, Paul says, the angel of the Lord stood by me. Doesn't say I saw him, says he stood by me. Maybe he was aware of him without ever having seen him. We don't know, but you can see that that's a possibility. The only difference If that were the case, the only difference in those two situations is that Philip and Paul didn't run away and hide because they weren't spooked by the supernatural. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. Oh, we read that, verse 7. Verse 8, therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. Notice that effect on his flesh, too. He's drained of strength. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength, yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. People get freaked out when people fall, when you lay hands on them. Wait till God starts setting them up. That's what happened here. The power of God set him up. The angel set him up on his hands and his feet. He must be face down. And he says, oh, that's not going to work. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. I like that. The angel is telling him his place and his position with God. God loves you. You may be without strength because you're in the presence of an angel. You may be face down because of the effect this is having on your flesh, but God loves you. O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself, that means to fast, Before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Now, folks, is that not exactly what Psalm 103, verse 20 is telling us? Bless you, Lord, O ye his angels, which excel in strength, which do hearken unto the voice of his word. Now, Daniel's first day was 21 days before. Why did it take 21 days? From the first day that you set your heart to seek the Lord and to fast, I am come for your words. I was sent from heaven, and I'm come because of your words. Folks, if that worked that way under the old covenant, is there any reason for us to think it doesn't work that way today? Do you realize that your words, when you set your face to seek God about something, do you realize your words set the angels in motion? You put something of God first in your life so that you try to seek after it or pursue it or gain understanding or or apply his will to your life. Do you not realize that that's what the Bible is telling us that sets the angels at work? 
Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it just doesn't feel like they're at work. It didn't feel like to Daniel that they were at work either. For 21 days. But notice he said, I came the first day when you spoke. And I'm come for your words. But, here's the delay. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make you understand what shall befall the people, thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So he tells him. He gives him understanding about the last days of Israel. Then skip down to verse 20. He said, then said he, here's the angel still speaking, knowest thou whence, wherefore I came unto thee? In other words, you know where I came from, don't you? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. He's talking about kingdoms. He's talking about world rulers. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Now, folks, i got to tell you something. Daniel's in some pretty good company here. Because in chapter 9, Gabriel shows up. In chapter 10, the angel that fights side by side with Michael shows up. And Michael came to help him fight through the obstacles or the resistance that the prince of the kingdom of Persia set up. Now, this prince of the kingdom of Persia is not talking about a man. There's no man that can, re- that can withhold revelation from God. No human being can keep you from knowing the things of God. So what's he talking about? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul gives us some real insight into spiritual things by the Holy Ghost when he tells us about putting on the armor of God. We'll start in verse 10. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the works, the trickery of the devil. Literally, the word wiles means traveling over. There's only one road the devil travels, and that's the road into your mind. He travels the road of thoughts. If he can't control your thoughts to make you think the wrong thing, he can't make you believe the wrong thing, and therefore he can't withhold the things of God from you. That's the only road he travels. The devil doesn't have a a million ways to get to you. He's got one way to get to you. Well, knowing that, you should know where to set up your guard, which is your mind. That's why the Bible says take every thought captive and bring it into obedience, the obedience of Christ. Amen? For... Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our fight's not with people. Even if people look like they're in our way, the fight's never with people. Well, who is it against then? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Notice the last one. Against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. That's who the angel was fighting through with Michael's help, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, in order to get to Daniel. Now, how can evil spirits stop revelation from coming? I thought the angels were greater than the demons. Well, really, the angels and the demons are on, and, and, um, and well, 
Never mind, I don't want to get into that, that discussion. The things of God are always greater than the things of the devil. But folks, Adam gave authority on the earth over to the devil. And so the spiritual wickedness in high and heavenly places has to do with the earth. Think of it like this. The Bible talks about three heavens. It, Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. Well, that means there's got to be three, right? What are the, th- the three heavens? Well, you've got heaven where God lives, and then you've got space, and then you've got the atmosphere. It's an interesting thing to read after the astronauts when they get up into space, and um, uh, especially guys that were saved, guys that knew God, at which many of the astronauts did. Because I remember um, uh, one guy, there were uh, three guys in the capsule, and one of these guys, or two of these guys were saved, and they said, we ran into some real problems up there. It wasn't Apollo 13, but, um, but uh, one of the, the other ones. And he said, we ran into some real problems up there, and it was a real critical problem. And so we looked at each other and said, we're going to have to come up with a solution to this. And so the two guys that were saved kind of leaned over to one another and said, let's pray about this. And they said, Lord, we need to know how to fix this problem. And instantly they had the answer. And so they fixed the problem, and it, and, and it went away. And then they looked at each other and said, have you ever had a prayer answered that easily? They said, no. The other one said, no. How about you? No. That was, a, that was a real different thing. So then they started experimenting with some things. They started talking to God, asking God for certain things, and instantly had an answer. And they concluded, now you judge this for yourself, but they concluded in the second heaven, once they were outside the atmosphere, once they were outside the boundary of the earth, which is Satan's territory. Satan's the god of this world. His territory ends with the atmosphere. Once they got outside of Satan's territory, they had instant answers from God for everything that they asked him. Now, folks, these were not Holy Ghost, tongue-talker, charismatic, wild-eyed guys. These were Baptist school teachers. If Baptist school teachers are getting instant answers to prayer, there's got to be something going on if you get my drift. Because most, I've never met a Baptist that really knows how to pray, according to the Word. I'm not saying they're not out there. I just haven't met them. I'm not convinced they are out there. I'm, but you know the point I'm trying to make. Most charismatics don't know how to pray. I'm not saying we're better than them, than, than somebody else. Most people, most Christians don't know how to pray according to the Word. They don't know the principles that govern prayer. And so prayer becomes a hit and miss thing. But when they were in space... Prayer was not a hit and miss thing. And they attributed it to being outside the earth's atmosphere. Now, did they know this? Well, if they did, they didn't say anything about it. But the spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places, this is not in heaven because evil spirits are not in heaven. It's not in space because there's no reason for them to be there. What higher heavenly places are they in? They're in the earth's atmosphere. That's one of the great benefits of praying in tongues because it sweeps the air clean. It sweeps the air clean, especially over you. Every great man of God that's received revelation in in a marked way has always, that I've ever read about, has always remarked in their own writings, their own testimony, their own autobiography, or whatever the case is, they've always remarked that the greatest revelations they ever received came as a result of speaking in other tongues. Usually while they were speaking in other tongues. Why? Because it sweeps the air clean. And it stands to reason that angels are trying to get the revelation of God, of who people are in Christ and what belongs to us in Christ, 
which is what God's will is for everybody to know, it stands to reason that those angels are working overtime for every Christian to try to get that knowledge to them. Well, why didn't it come to everybody then? Well, you've got evil forces that are working against them. And unless somebody really determines as an act of their will, like Daniel did, even under the old covenant, unless somebody actively determines that they're going to find out what the Bible says, find out who we are in Christ, find out what belongs to me, and I won't take no for an answer, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll fast, I'll, I'll do whatever is necessary to put spiritual things first above natural things until I get the answer, they don't have much chance of getting through. Because they're working from the top side, unless we're working from the underside, they never make it through. Now, in my opinion, it took Daniel three weeks to get the answer, primarily because he was unsaved. I've never had to go three weeks without an answer for something that I really set my heart on on finding the answer to. The longest I've ever had to go was three days to really fast and pray about something. People talk about going on these long fasts. Why? The reason you're going to fast is to get information from God. Once I get the information, I'm going to eat. (laughs) But people try to go on these things because they see things in the Bible and they don't understand the purpose. And so people try to go on these 40-day fasts. People ruin their bodies. They wreck their kidneys. I know some ministers, well-known ministers, that have got serious kidney problems because they went on these 40-day fasts just because they saw that other people did in the Bible. Not me. See, fasting has a purpose. Seeking God has a purpose. Now, in a general way, I'm seeking God continually. But in a specific way, if there's a specific answer I need, that's where I zero in on. And I won't turn loose until I get it. But I've never had to go over three days before I got the answer. Oh, what God could do if we'd do our part. What work the angels could accomplish if we'd do our part. Amen? Um, In the summer of 1989, I think it was. It's either 88 or 89. I'm pretty sure it was 89. Beth and I went to Hawaii. First time we'd ever been to Hawaii. And I woke up one morning just as uh, just as dawn was starting to, to break. I wake up early in Hawaii anyway because the time is, you know, they're three or four hours earlier than us anyhow. And so I woke up just as the sun was coming up. And I saw an angel standing in the room. Well, I say in the room. Actually, it was on the, the, the little porch that they call Lanai's in Hawaii. And I saw him standing there. And it was the strangest thing. I was instantly awake. Instantly awake. And it was like the hairs were standing up on my arms. Here's the supernatural. It didn't frighten me. But boy, everything about my flesh was just alive. Felt that way anyhow. So I looked at him for a few seconds. And then I got up and I walked outside on the lanai. Now, the door was open. We had been sleeping with the, uh, with the sliding door open, and Beth was still in bed, so I closed the door. I don't like her listening in when I talk to angels. So anyway, I closed the door, 
And before I could say anything, he, he introduced himself. He said, I'm the angel of the church. And he called the name of the church. And he said, I am sent from Almighty God. And I can still hear that, that phrase reverberate on the inside of me because the way he said it, there was such reverence, but there was a familiarity to it too. I am sent from Almighty God to deliver a message to you. Well, I didn't know so much about angels. I didn't know too much about what the Bible says about angels. But I did remember that, that Brother Hagin had talked about in one vision that he had. Jesus appeared and there was an angel standing off behind him to the right. And every time he looked at the angel, the angel looked like he wanted to say something. And when he'd look away, the angel would stop and wouldn't continue. And finally, Brother Hagin asked Jesus, who is this fellow? He said, that's your angel. He said, my angel? He said, yeah, haven't you read in the, read in the Bible that the angels, uh, children's angels behold the face of the Father? And Jesus smiled and he said, you don't lose your angel just because you grow up. He said, well, what's he doing here? He asked Jesus, what's he doing here? And he said, well, he's got a message to you from the throne of heaven. And he said, well, you're here. Why aren't you telling me? And Jesus went through and he showed him some of the places about divine guidance. Well, I'd heard Brother Hagin tell the story, but I'd never really studied it out. Angels were never a big deal, uh, you know, as far as I was concerned. I thought, well, okay, that's cool. Okay. But I'd never really studied it out. And at the moment where that angel appeared, and I'm standing there and he says, I am sent from the throne of Almighty God with a message for, for you. I really wish I had studied on angels more at that moment. And he delivered the message to me. And that, that message that he delivered regarding the church was direction. And that direction has caused us to be steady for all these many years in the face of a lot of different things. Now, the next year, he showed up again. We went back to the same hotel, same room. I woke up one morning and he showed up again. This time he's got a big grin on his face. It's like, you didn't think I was going to be here again, did you? And he, ta- he gave me direction that time, too. That time, he gave me not direction on the, about the church. He gave me direction about my own life. Now, that's the last time I've seen that angel. But in all fairness to the Lord, we did change hotels. <laughs> but, folks, there's been another time where I was very conscious of an angel. And that was, um, uh, well, uh, another time regarding guidance that I was very conscious of an angel. And that one happened in Hawaii, too. And it was about uh, five or six years ago. God lived in Hawaii. I don't know if you know that. But God really lives and works in Hawaii. Um, I was on the beach. I took my iPod, had a little beach chair all by myself, just praying, listening to some tapes or, or, you know, the MP3 things on your on the iPod, listening to Brother Hagin, just casually seeking God about, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've been down here for almost uh, two weeks. going to have to preach when I go home. What do you want me to preach? That kind of stuff. And, uh, and I, uh, all of a sudden, I had a knowing. It was like I heard a voice. As a matter of fact, it was so strong, I almost turned around and looked, around, looked behind me. It seemed audible to me, but I know that it wasn't. But it came real strong. Now, it's interesting because the, the instruction that it gave me was to start prayer school. And he gave me the direction for prayer school, and we've been doing that now for five or six years, however long it's been. 
And uh, specifically because that was the direction that the angel gave me. Now, you might say, how do you know it was an angel? Because it was different than any other direction I've ever gotten. I know what the inward witness is. I know what uh, the leading of the Lord in the inward witness is. I've heard the Lord speak to me. There's an inward voice or uh, the voice of the Spirit of God that, uh, or the voice of the Lord on the inside of you. It's a stronger thing. I've had God say things on the inside of me that just shook me. It wasn't like that. It was like it was something that was separate from me. And I never really had an experience like that before. But it was something that was totally separate. I was very conscious of this is something that came out from outside of me. Well, Jesus and the Holy Ghost live on the inside of me. Their voice is not going to come from the outside. And I remember thinking, wow, that was really strange. And I didn't think about it for a couple of years. I just... The only thought I had was that was really strange in the way that it came, the impact that that voice had on me. But looking back at it, I can see very clearly that was the angel. That may have happened in Acts chapter 27, where Paul said, The angel of the Lord stood by me this night and said, Fear not, Paul, there shall be no loss of life but of the ship. That's why I'm real careful to say that the Bible does not specify that Paul saw him. Because sometimes angels can speak to you and you not see them. Just be aware that they're there. Thank God for divine guidance. I'm convinced that God wants to do a lot more than what we're allowing him to do. And the biggest part of that is not us resisting so much. It's just that we've got in our minds how things are supposed to be. And so we're not open to other things that he wants. If there is an, uh, an innumerable company of angels, that tells me there's a lot of work that they could and should be doing in the earth that we're not cooperating with. Otherwise, why would there be a number too big to count? Amen? Thank God for angels. Don't look for them. Don't seek after them. For goodness sakes, don't try to talk to them or pray to them. That's unscriptural. But be expectant that when you speak God's word, they're at work. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the angels that are sent to minister for us as heirs of salvation. Oh, Lord, help us to be open-minded to receive anything and everything you have in any and every way that you've sent it. Thank you that the angels are agents of protection. They're agents of healing. And they're agents of divine guidance. Father, we see the end of days approaching. And we thank you for increasing the work of angels in our lives and in the church as we become more aware of all that you want to do and all that the angels do and have done. Thank you, Father, for greater glory than the early days of the church when the angels were in in operation in great abundance. Thank you that it will be an even greater measure in these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. Have a great rest of the week.